Well, I don't know what management could do that would make me leave. Even if I wasn't getting paid, I would still be here. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Squeezing the Orange of Social Science, a podcast co-hosted by myself, comedian Akinoma Bitan, and Professor Dan Cable. In each episode, the two of us pick apart, peer-reviewed, and published social science papers, and we squeeze them apart for their best bits so that you, the listener, do not have to. What's up, Dan? <laughs> Hi, Akin. How are you? I'm feeling good, man. What, what is your best animal sound? My best animal sound? Probably a dog. I listen to a lot of DMX Could growing up. Could I hear up. it? Or... Ruff, ruff. I can do a reasonably good elephant. Go for it. <clears throat> okay, I've never met an elephant in real life. However, were I to close my eyes and you repeat that, I would believe that there was indeed an elephant in this so, room. <laughs> game, listeners. Today's study is all about zookeepers. And boy, that opening quote just sums it all up for me. It's this idea that in many careers and many occupations, zookeeping being one of them, people are there for deep personal reasons that feel moral. They feel like a calling. And that may be nice. On the one hand, that may feel like it's meaningful and it it feels like what you're doing has import to the world, but it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, and with that double-edged sword as well, that's I guess that's part of the title as well. So the title of this study is The Call of the Wild. Perfect. Zookeepers, Callings, and the Double-Edged Sword of Deeply Meaningful Work. And just off the top, this is to, I guess, imply that when we find, I guess, our purpose, or if we believe we found our purpose... There's something that we need to be a bit cautious of. That's right. What does that, I guess, that belief or that position then cost you? And what does it cause you to do? That's right. It's really powerful. And in that sense, this is uh, Stuart Bunderson and Jeff Thompson, Jeffrey Thompson. What they've really brought to the forefront in my mind is how in today's nomenclature, in today's way of thinking about calling and purpose and meaning, it's all good. That's what they're calling this like modern conception of purpose. It's like, oh, everybody should do this. And it's just like, you got to follow your bliss. You got to find out what you love and then you be you. And it's, it's, it's nice, but it's all the upside of that. And maybe what they're doing is they're saying, um, yes, that's great. Those things probably do exist, but if you're not careful, you might end up getting tricked, this manipulated. Reads, yeah, this reads like a cautionary tell for me, yeah, this study. It yeah. reads like a cautionary tell in the sense of when I think of a lot of these fairy tales, so if we take like, off the top of my head, Hansel and Gretel. So the two of them, bro and sis, walking around the woods, they see a house made of candy. And they're like, we love candy. Bonus. Yeah, so everything sounds good. But the whole point of that is to let you know that if you are walking through the woods and you see a house made out of candy, something's up. Be careful. Why is that there? Why is the rain not melted that house? Our questions are everywhere. Wait, that was one of your questions, Dan? (laughs) (laughs) I was just about to let that slide. In the whole story of Hansel and Gretel, Dan's number one question is, why has the rain not melted the house? Anyway, this particular study really, really called to me because once upon a time, I lived in North Carolina and up in the mountains in particular, 
people had these bumper stickers and they said, follow your bliss. Mm. And once upon a time, I saw another one that said, follow your blisters. Ooh. And what I loved about that is so many times in life, it isn't just about what makes you happy. It's what you're willing to do even after it hurts for a while. Oh, man. I think there's really something... In this study that, re, that that flared that up in my brain, that as we try to find our purpose, a lot of times the sacrifice or the duty that it takes to pursue that isn't as rosy, happy, joyous. And sometimes, in this case, you might be damaging relationships to follow your purpose. You might be um, sacrificing income. A lot of the people in this study, we're going to talk about in a little bit, they had to take on other jobs in order to do their job. They'd like subsidize them working. <laughs> That's like buying a Lego set and then paying somebody to build it for you or something like this. It's, <laughs> I think it's even worse than that. It's like, how could I? No, but that Lego, it's like buying, you buy a Lego set because you love building Lego. But then you but, outsource it. But <laughs> it's even worse than that. It's like, oh man. Okay, you know what? We need this okay. Lego one is okay. like you've said too many profound okay. things, Dan. My okay. brain I'll... is like exploding right now with Well, let's talk about the zookeepers thing because we have to decide with you listeners whether zookeeping is really the right setting to be studying all this because it's a pretty niche situation. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, but you know, most people out there aren't going to be zookeepers. So what do you reckon? Like, why do you think this might have been the right type of sample or job to study? I feel, Yeah, I feel like zookeeping was perfect because what they've done is they've managed to find a, a career in which the, most of the people who do it are doing it because of a love for animals. So you might really love your project management position, but you're probably not getting excited at the prospect of sitting on Excel or Word or even MS projects. Like you may really love planning and um, you might even really love banking, but you probably just don't really love the banking sector that much, but you just kind of like love what it produces. Whereas with zookeepers, they love what they do to their own detriment. That's it. That's and right. it's a bit, and I'm going to like use a, a religious uh, example here, because even when they build up their case in this study, they use quite a lot of religious and philosophical, like kind of like elements to yeah. really try to explain. Like there's a lot going on here. And I guess part of my examples would be the story of Jesus, where the story is of someone who loved the world so much that he gave up his own life for the very people who were pretty much bringing about his own demise. And when you think of zookeepers, they're sacrificing their own life for these animals. Basically, and it's really strong when you when you read the quotes. What they did is they started this thing off like, almost like study one. Because what's so great about this study in my mind. I mean, it has some limitations, so it's not perfect. But one of the things that is great about it is they start with a qualitative study where they just went and talked to loads and loads of people about what it felt like to be a zookeeper and what what did it mean to them and all that sort of thing. And maybe that was, what was that, like 30 people or something? I'm kind of blanking a little well, bit. I believe it was 60-something. Okay. Yeah, I think it was more in the range of the 60s in terms of like the, these interviews. So they, they, they had like, basically, they went to these different zoos and it was just like in me 
meetings basically yep. so it's just like yep. can we just grab like an hour of your time that's it. That's and i it. think that's i like you've done a lot of research dan but that's got to be a bit of an irregular day right in terms of if you're conducting study and it's like okay you're like we're today we're going to go to or over the course of this week or month we're going to just go to loads of zoos yes. and talk to zookeepers yes. i mean to me that would just be the dream it's one of the best ways to start research because you don't go in already thinking you know what you're looking for. Like a lot of my research is survey research. Well, you can't put together a survey till you have a scale and you can't have a scale till you know what you're trying to measure. That means you kind of already think you know. What they're doing is they're saying like, we don't really know a lot about this domain. Let's just go talk to them and see what comes up. And a lot of what came out are these quotes like, it's a calling for me because my whole life I've just been interested in animals. So looking back, I should have known at some point I'd be working with animals. Another fascinating quote as well. Just to and this is for for the listeners, we're just trying to get you into the mind of when we talk about zookeepers, we're talking about people who are pretty much obsessive about like their court. They believe it to be destiny. Like they found their purpose, their meaning for being. For them, this is probably one of the most important things. It's like they, there's quite a lot of their life value is in what they're able to contribute to the world. So one of the other quotes is, I slept and ate and read reptiles when I was a little boy. I thought that's all there was. Most boys my age, all they thought about was girls. Well, I thought about girls and reptiles. And I want to know, like, oh, I want to know what category this individual. together? Hey. I think, I think when I, um, first time I saw that, when he said he ate reptiles, (laughs) I thought, well, man, some of those snakes are poisonous. So you got to be careful. Anyway, they're doing a lot of cleaning animal feces and scrubbing enclosures and feeding the animals and like carrying around heavy stuff. I mean, a lot of this, I don't know if folks out there listening think that zookeeping sounds sexy or not. But when you really break it down and you think about the 12, 13 hour shifts, the coming in in the snow and the rain, the, you know, scrubbing down urine and stuff, not so glamorous in a lot of ways, but the average person, by the way, 82% of these people have a college degree in like animal husbandry and stuff like that. They are so poorly paid. The average annual income is 24000 I mean, that's the lowest quartile of U.S. occupations in terms of like hourly wage. I mean, here's what I love about this. I love how now we're broadening why this is such a great study for us to be talking about. It isn't really about zookeeping. It's about any career where people feel personally drawn to for an emotional, non-logical reason that you could call a calling, you call it your purpose and so on. But the thing is, then you're there, not for the money. They all basically said it's not for the money. Like They all said, like, I could work at Subway and make more money. They're drawn to it because they just think it's important and valuable and interesting. And much of the modern literature acts like that's great. And what this is showing is that's exploitative. <laughs> So my, Allison, my partner, um, for a long time in North Carolina and in Georgia, she was what is called an adjunct professor in the English department. And that would mean she'd teach four classes in the fall, four in the spring, do all her own grading, 170, 190 grades, five, six, seven times a, a semester. She would get told on the day before she had to start, here it is, no time to prep. And they made even less than this. Now, You could say, well, then just quit. Well, she loved English and English literature. She pursued it, got a master's degree in it, and there were more people than jobs. The moment she'd say, ah, I can't do that. You're treating me like a jerk. There'd be 18 people say, I'll take it. I'll take it. 
You ever have any of these experiences, Erkin? Man, I, I feel like I'm fortunate in the sense of I'm one of those people who my outlook to certain things is what's in it for me. Like, I will do things that I love. I don't like complicating that with pay. I really don't like to do that. If I'm doing something because I love to do it, I want to be able to confidently do that regardless of how much I'm being paid. Once pay now becomes a factor, it just has this ability for me to corrupt certain things. And so I've not, I've not been in, I've been in situations where I've had jobs that I love, but I would very happily walk away from a job that I love if I feel like it wasn't fulfilling me in other areas of my life. And I've done so before in the past. This is also bringing to mind that one that we did with Jeffrey Pfeffer and Stanford DeVoe on kind of what your hourly rate is. Because in a lot of things you do in life, including I bet some of your comedy you could talk about, when you really break it down, it's depressing. So best not to. You know, I'm thinking yeah. about like with these zookeepers – a lot of them are working like abnormal hours. They're coming in all the weekends. They're coming in on holidays. They're canceling vacations. One of them like got a divorce. Do you have a, do you, do you have one quote? I mean, is that too much to demand a quote on? No, it's not, I mean, it's not even too much to demand. It was probably the most hilarious quote because the quote simply was working here at the zoo has cost me a marriage. Now, this is, this is, this is both, this is the, this is the danger of, of what's going on here because what's costing like if you work in oh man this is so difficult man like this is really difficult because what you have here is you have people who are overqualified underpaid as well and they're choosing that over a significant other that's right like if i had the choice right now between snuggling up in bed with my partner and answering or answering the phone call and being like, yo, Akin, we need you at the zoo. One of the penguins has started throwing up uncontrollably. Like there are people who are choosing to tell their partner it's an emergency. Oh, and not just once. Like they got to the point where it cost them the marriage. So it was almost like that wolf and it's urine. I got to go scrub that out. And that's going to have to be more important to you. Not because I'm bringing home lots of bacon. Not because I'm like really, really making the money that earns this rich, lavish lifestyle where we're going to go to Cairo next week. This is more like I'm making in the lowest possible quartile. It's almost illegal. Not oh. only, sorry to interrupt, Dan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Not only are these individuals earning the least, they are reliant on either their partners or on another job. So just to kind of add even more gravity to what's going on here, take the same situation. Let's say it's 11 p.m., and you and your partner, let's say you're just snuggled up. You've got like Netflix on the iPad. You know, you've had like a really lovely dinner. You're, you're, you're watching like you're binge watching a show together. You now get a call, which is, can you get down to the zoo right now? There's a penguin emergency. Now the person who you are leaving in that bed, not only are they warm, loving, kind, they're probably also footing most of the bills in the house as well. So now you're now getting out of bed to tell them, I need to sort out this penguin yeah. situation. Do you hate penguins? I tell you what, I was trying to think of the most inoffensive right. animal. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah fair enough. I don't like want they, us getting They complaints. talk a lot about the gorillas um, in this one because like, apparently they have really stinky urine and stuff. But, okay, what what else? What do we want to jump to? Um, here's what something I found really important about this study and there may be some quotes that we want to show it but i really feel like something i learned deep down 
this idea that there is a classical view of calling, which was God-oriented. It meant that each person is given a gift and a purpose. And then we moved a little bit from that. I mean, that almost was like a divine way to look at like being a cobbler. Everybody had their purpose to play. And, um, you know, like this is like Kelvin and this is Martin Luther and so on. This is like you're doing that job serves God. And therefore, it's just as important as whatever else, being even like a preacher or something like that. Totally. And also, just to like jump in as well, listeners, just to kind of give a bit more context, what Dan is referring to is how we operate as a society. Yeah. So like yeah. socially, we we were previously, so we're probably talking about hundreds of years ago, if not thousands. So as a society, we were a bit like people do what they do because of the gifts that God has given them. Exactly. So if you are now using those gifts, you're almost like a, a vessel. You're like a channel. You're doing God's work. That's right. And it That's doesn't right. have to be yes. in the church. It yes. can be socially. No, absolutely. But you want to be a yeah. contributing member to society. And it shows that you are, I guess, worshipping God and also doing a good that makes the world yeah. a better place, which sounds delightful. It really it does, does sound it does. delightful. It's a, um, it's a way to think in the classic way that everybody has a duty to find their purpose and then follow that, be it zoo animals or shoes or whatever, you know, spreadsheets, whatever that might be. Then jump to whatever, 2000, probably three or something, a whole field emerged around this notion of calling and important work, importance of work and meaning of work. And that approach fits really well into positive psychology. And it's this idea that you ought to do that, not because of this whole God thing. Forget about that. It doesn't even come up. The whole God thing doesn't come up. It's like, you'll just be happier. You just have a better time. You know, it's, it like, de- it like strips off all the heavy stuff about religion. So it's just like, no, no, life's better. You should just try that. And then, you know, you work better, better productivity. They're kind of doing something where they're calling it the neoclassical. And I know we already brought this up a little bit, but for me... It sounds like an oxymoron to me. It, it is. It is. I mean, neoclassical, though, that's a real phrase. That no, oh, yeah, 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 totally. It's really true, though. Each time I read it, I was a bit like... They're like, in this sense, they're using it in this. They're calling it the neoclassical conceptualization of calling. And what I like about that is, and I like it a lot... It strips away, on the one hand, all the God stuff, which lots of people just can't abide by, right? Gets rid of all that stuff. And, you know, we don't have to make it supernatural. And, like, you know, you're born with this thing that's shining from within and all this. Great. Get rid of all that. But it isn't like it's just joy. And I think that's really interesting and clever. And I there's loads of interesting quotes about sacrifice and, and moral duty and – um yeah, there's broader meaning and significance. And that feels good. But I also find that, like – I'm doing this almost uncontrollably. I'm I'm subsidizing in many ways my own work for management. In it's a like sense. a compulsion. Yes. That's I think that's what yes. I found quite so dangerous. Right. That's why I found really dangerous reading some of these quotes and looking at what they were finding. It felt like there was a compulsion, and the issue with that is that you then strip someone's autonomy. 
So they stop becoming an individual and they now start becoming a resource. So it's kind of like what the opposite of bad working environments do. So I've worked in several companies where people turn up very enthusiastic to work and to discover how they can contribute to that. What's happening here is you have people who believe that it's their passion. So if I can just kind of explain a bit more on that, what you may have is a situation where a bad working environment causes enthusiastic people to become become less enthusiastic and passionate about their job. Mm. What happens with these individuals who their most their main driving thing is the purpose and they feel like it's a calling, what's happening to them is that bad working conditions are making them even more dedicated yes, yes. to the work that yes. they are doing. Here's something else that's a little counterintuitive. For management, if you're one of those managers out there thinking like how do I exploit the how do I exploit a little bit harder and better? It's not always going to work in your favor because what happens is those people, especially in this study about the zookeepers, their number one boss are the animals. Yes. Not you. Yes. So like there's this one quote. It's like going back to the penguins. <laughs> penguins are a theme. He goes, I trained these penguins to swim more because that was a problem. They would just be penguins sitting around like they normally do, just sitting there. And then they'd have their feeding session and, <laughs> and the crowds, they completely fill with people. And then you see these people dragging their kids away. So it's this idea that they're not necessarily doing all the moves. Oh, there was another one about the cats and the rats. Where like yes. management was getting like bad, bad rats. rats. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, I'm not feeding those cats, those bad rats. And the manager was like, feed them those rats. Like, I'm not doing it. And then manager finally had to acquiesce to like, get better rats. None of this I understand, by the way. But what I'm, I guess I'm bringing up the idea here is when you feel this calling, a lot of times it's not like the calling to be a better worker, to like help your boss in their maniacal concerns. A lot of times it's like, no, it's about the animal or it's about what we're trying to accomplish here. It's this idea that there's like a moral component to what we're doing. Yeah. And that's the dangerous element of that is I, and from what I read in this study and what we can do is after I say this, we can go through some of the hypotheses yeah, as well, just to kind of give yeah. a bit more shape yeah. to, yeah. to kind of what Dan and I are saying. So one of the things I find dangerous about this kind of strong ideology is what it does is it makes individuals so empathetic towards their purpose and what they deem to be a value that they're no longer able to relate or understand why someone could find value or appreciate something else and to give an example of this these individuals they're very capable and competent at understanding the needs of the animals in the zoo they score too high in that regard as a result they're not able to understand that the zoo is a business and that it has to make money and it has to make money not only for the animals but for it to be a lucrative business then they they there's a disconnect that happens where they're so entrenched they've drank so much of the kool-aid like that they for them it like they're not able to understand why the company could get there was an example of the company getting 15k the company is given 15 foul and the, the people, the zookeepers don't understand why 100% of that is not going to the animals. Yes. They'll put in like a mister for the hot days or like they'll put in like a new whatever, a new patio. And these workers are like really going bullshit on that. Like they're really, really upset because that should have gone for like better rats or like better food or more containment space or whatever. And um, I think another thing. Gosh, it's just so much to go through here, Akin. But one of the things is, I've got a little bit of an issue with zoos, and maybe you do too. I, I do. I think that in 100 years, we'll look back 
And we'll be like, I can't believe you kept these animals in cages. Like, they're not slaves. Like, they're not prisoners. Like, you're, that's not your right. That, that, that's not your right to put them in that cage with the steel and then give them bad rats. But this is this is the thing that's so... And, and I think as well, I'm saying a lot of strong statements for a conversation that is very nuanced. And I, I just want to really acknowledge that as well. I don't agree with zoos. However, part of the zookeeper's belief is that if we don't do this, these animals become extinct. So I can see why they are so... Um, I guess entrenched in their belief because they don't necessarily see another way. However, part of the way that I see it is, man, like it, it might sound quite dark. We humans ain't going to be around here for like as long as the earth is like, yeah. like I feel like there's quite a bit of merit to survival of the fittest. And I don't mean this in a bleak way, but if as humans, we're not able to cooperate with one another and allow this planet to flourish, eventually the planet's going to be like, poof, you guys can go as well. <laughs> You're not helpful. Yeah, like when I, re- yeah when I read about pandas, like if the pandas don't want to make sweet love, they gots to go. Like part of that isn't human intervention, yes, at and, least to my knowledge. Yeah, this though, this part is really important. They said things like, the animals never chose to be here and it's our responsibility to come in and give them what they need and give them the care and make sure they're happy and healthy. And there's these other ones like, um, oh, I, I can't find it right now, but it's like a lot of people say release them out into the wild in their natural habitat. Well, guess what? We've ruined that. Yeah. There isn't a natural habitat anymore because we've taken it and made a housing development. So when you say release them into the wild, do you mean into that cul-de-sac over there? Like in the middle? They can graze in the <laughs> Man, because I've seen the movie. I think it's uh, it might be – the sequel to Madagascar. This is what happens when you got so many god kids and nieces. People like if like if any of my friends are listening to this and you haven't had kids yet. When you have kids, don't ask me to be a godparent. I've now got like I can't even count how many godparents I've got. You mean other names? Oh, ma- okay. <laughs> You're gonna really embarrass me now. Okay, yeah, so- one of my like one of the uh, friends who I'm godparent to one of her daughters. I asked how old the kid was and they were like, you should be ashamed. You don't even know how old your goddaughter. I'm like, I don't even know how old my niece is, man. Relax. <laughs> like, but okay, that's a whole different conversation. Listen, I got to hit, let's hit on pause for one second because we don't want to push too far past our 30 minute mark. There's plenty of good meat here. I think that maybe what we want to do is talk a little bit about study two and how they supported the hypotheses, these propositions you mentioned. Go for it. And, um, let me just briefly talk about what they expected to find at a high level. I don't know if I'm going to dig into each of the particular hypotheses, but like essentially what you uh, listeners want to get into your brain is a sort of a model where there's this predictor, this thing that some people feel, but most people don't feel. And it's this notion of a calling to kind of serve these animals. And that's this neoclassical calling they're calling that. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And And just before you dive into that as well, just I guess as a bit of a, a, a bookmark or a bit of a footnote or just to add some more red tape. So the purpose of this study, the purpose of it is to suggest that when you do have a calling, there's a w there's a double edged sword that you should be aware of which is to suggest that there's going to be part of your life that is enriched because you have found your purpose so i'm going in a bit hard on some of these zookeepers and people who are obsessed with their work it's very good it's a positive thing to find a job that you feel fulfills a certain purpose in your life 
The study is finding that there's also a dark side to this as well. There's a harmful side which suggests that because you have found your purpose, there's going to be things that actually do have a value to it that exist outside of that purpose's, I guess, direct results, which you're now going to be possibly at risk of losing out on and quite voluntarily like happily sacrificing like the person who sacrificed their marriage people who are sacrificing how much they get paid your time people are sacrificing their health and well-being so like i guess the purpose of this just before dan continues in terms of the second part the first part was the qualitative stuff so some of the conversations that dan and i are having now are about interview quotes and what they found through talking to these zookeepers and now dan's going to discuss i guess some of the the quantitative yeah. findings so after they realized what was going on here they were a bit like oh is there a way that we can measure this that's it and you know for what that's worth listeners i mean to be honest you kind of got the grist of it and the and the major bits already those quotes really help this sell but with quotes you're always interpreting you're always thinking did i get that right did i really hear that right did i interpret it right so what the this study did is they actually went to this huge number of people uh in 48 different states and five Canadian provinces, 250 animal-related facilities. They go in and they measure all these people with scales. And again, you can quibble with the scales, but like, for example, on this one called calling, some people would really agree and some people wouldn't agree. But here it goes like this. Working with animals feels like a calling in my life. Here's another one. It sometimes feels like I was destined to work with animals. And another one might be something like, working with animals feels like a niche in my life. So what they would do is they would answer these. And some people would be like, absolutely, strongly agree. It's a seven. And another one might say one. I just completely disagree with that. And then what they basically found is four folks that had more of that feeling of calling. They had these two middle ground things. One's called occupational identification. That means that you feel that your occupation describes you as a human, that there's a huge amount of overlap between what it means to be a zookeeper and what it means to be a human for you. And that's really interesting. And then the second middle ground one is called moral duty. And I thought maybe we'd read one or two of those items for folks just so that they could kind of like hear what it was. But it's this idea that it is feeling essential to life or your moral obligation. Here's one item. It says, I consider it my sacred duty to do what, to do all I can for my animals. Another one would be caring for my animals is like a sacred trust to me. I mean, that's really, really strong. So some people are going to be like, absolutely. Like that's what I live for. Other people are like, not so much. What they found is that, and I think this is the part that was really kind of cool for me. They found that four people who had a lot of that organizational, that occupational identification, that's when the good stuff kicked in. Work felt more meaningful. Your occupational felt more like, I'm doing something great for the world. The moral duty one, I'm not saying it's all bad, by the way. That seems to be the dimension that led to these negative things you mentioned. Like this willingness to sacrifice might be income, might be a spouse almost. And the other one is this perceived organizational duty that you'll show up and just do whatever, whatever, taking the call at whatever hour. So I don't know, you know, I don't know if you really needed to hear that, but they, they really found great support for this. And I didn't know if that like, was there anything in that Akin that you thought we needed to highlight a little bit more? Or is it just enough to say that they paired that qualitative study with some sort of quantitative data? 
I guess I'll speak a little bit more. I know we've gone into the quantitative side, but I'll speak a little bit more anecdotally. Uh, I remember being out with a friend, and while we were out, we came across a chap who was lying on the floor who looked pretty unconscious. So we felt a moral duty to phone the ambulance to make sure that they were okay, to make sure that they were in the recovery position. While we were waiting for the ambulance to arrive, um, a doctor turned up and the doctor was with a friend and the doctor was like, oh, what's what's happened here? And we were like, oh, we just found this individual like this. We're waiting for the ambulance to turn up. The doctor reached into the back pocket, pulled out a little flashlight, looked into their eyes and was a bit like, yeah, they just look like they've a bit drunk and then just walked off. Now, me and my friend were aghast. We're a bit like, how could a doctor see someone who is in need? And then it wasn't until some time later that I realized that if you are a doctor, and I feel like this, for me, I feel like this was probably a good doctor in the sense of they had assessed enough to know that the individual was fine and an ambulance is on its way. And they decided that I've got an evening to enjoy. I've got a night. I've got a night to enjoy. And at the time for me, it felt like that doctor was being maybe irresponsible or crass or, or crass yeah. Yeah. yeah but then i realize it's similar with police as well uh, i know some police officers and they say as police you're never off duty if something happens you need to announce yourself as a police officer but in order for them to actually enjoy their lives there comes a point where they do just need to switch off yep. there comes a point yep. where i've had situations before as a comedian a lot of that is that's it's, it's, it is entirely freelance work but there's sometimes I will say no to a job because I got to spend time with my friends and family. Yeah. Burnout is real. Yeah. I think that that's part of what's going to happen with a lot of these folks. Might be fine to do this when you're 20 years old. Say you've been doing it for 30 years and now you're 50. You're still not even close to retiring. You're just feeling kind of broken and was physically beat and intellectually beat down. And yeah, you have this moral calling, but your real life doesn't seem to exist very often. And I think they're saying, yeah, well, that is my real life. And that's the part of it that we're bringing up as attention. Yeah. And I that's- feel like that's the danger of the occupational identification as well, where you now connect so much with that job role that for you, it's not a job. For you, it, it is it is your life. Yep. So if you remove that element, this is why I think at the top, there was the quote about from an individual who said, even if they weren't paid, they would still do it. Which is beautiful on one hand, because you have found something that you're massively passionate about. But it's also quite dangerous on the other hand as well, because some of these individuals prior to becoming paid zookeepers, some of them had volunteered from between like six months to three years doing this voluntarily for free. free. I volunteered for charities. I volunteered for a crisis. Uh, Like some Christmases, I will volunteer and help the homeless. I'm going to do like over the Christmas period... Like maximum six days, I'm going to do my bit. And then I'm going to be like, you know what? Like you people who are getting paid to do this on the regular, more strength to you. But I've got like, I've got turkey to eat, man. (laughs) Should we leave it at that? Let's. (laughs) You guys have been wonderful. Thanks once again for rocking with us. Enjoy the rest of your lives. Ciao.